You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Keith Smith from the Discovery Programme. This paper was entitled Lost But Not Forgotten, Altar Plate in the Inventories of Kilcolm Franciscan Friary. Just to give you a bit of uh, an idea, um, I, I'm going to give a little bit of, of context going because it goes a little bit into the medieval period, but it won't be, won't be too much. Um, the widespread loss and destruction of Irish Catholic and specifically Franciscan altar plates uh, has often been attributed to the ravages of war, the persecution and aggression of uh, the Protestant English, and also the simple passing of time and fading from memory of these objects. Roughly 400 objects or, uh, or so um, have survived to the, uh, to the present in the possession of the mendicant orders and, in, and museums in Ireland. These would be chalices, patents, other, uh, other uh, pieces of liturgical uh, vessels. These, this may seem like a meagre collection given the omnipresence of religious foundations in Ireland, uh, but documentary evidence such as inventories uh, suggests the total number would have actually been far higher. What Ultraplate as a source can reveal through its provenance and survival, uh, either corporately or in documentary records, uh, is the complex realities of late medieval and early modern Irish society from religious, uh, social and political perspectives, um, and the importance of Ultraplate as a symbol of Irish Roman Catholicism, as a relic of the patrons and benefactors of the religious orders. Um, so the paper will begin by briefly contextualising the religious orders in Ireland and the patronage networks they fostered here, uh, examining the material culture of, the, um, of Kilconnell Franciscan Friary, exploring the role of patrons in the preservation of chalices and uh, the measures taken during times of strife. Um, and finally, it will also examine one chalice in detail, the Thomas Burke Chalice of 1633. Um, it, it's one of uh, five very significant pieces of altar plate uh, that are connected with Kilconnell Franciscan Friary. Uh, this will hopefully demonstrate the role of material culture in developing our understanding of complex networks and the impact these have in early modern Irish history. So the religious orders in Ireland themselves. Responding to a demand for ecclesiastical reform in the 13th century, the mendicant orders embraced poverty and carried out their spiritual work within local communities rather than behind the monastic walls of the Cistercian and Benedictine abbeys. This engagement with local, the local uh, community fostered lost, lasting bonds between the orders themselves and local patrons uh, who acted as benefactors and protectors. Uh, these connections were to endure political and religious turmoil and even the conversion of the protectors themselves. Upon the arrival in Ireland in the 13th century, the mendicant orders focused their foundations on the Anglo-Norman urban settlements uh, on the east and south coast for patronage, both in order to engage in their urban pastoral ministry um, and due to their reliance on uh, alms from the town dwellers. So let's just to give you just a general idea of, of the, uh, the area. Um, initial mendicant expansion uh, peaked around about 1270, um, and uh, faltering at the beginning of the 14th century as recession, uh, depopulation and the Gaelic resurgence threatened the Anglo-Norman colony in Ireland. 
Uh, the mendicant orders recovered and expanded again during the late 14th and uh, early 15th centuries, but this time uh, into the rural territories of the powerful uh, Gaelic and uh, Anglo-Irish, if you want to use, if you let me use that term, magnates in the west and north of Ireland. Uh, it was here that Catholic Irish power was to last until the end of the 17th century, and it's from here that the greatest amount of altar place uh, survives. So, what was the role of the patrons? Um, simply put, lands, uh, financial support, novices, and protection. Uh, from the church itself to dormitories and cloisters, um, from art to altar place, fisheries, uh, even beer and candle wax, the friars ex uh, depended extensively on the generosity of their patrons and benefactors. This contrasted greatly to the, with the old uh, enclosed orders such as the Sturgeons that had striven, striven for self-sufficiency, of course, once after they'd gotten enormous uh, gifts of land. Uh, the wealth and stature of the Gaelic Irish and Old English benefactors was often reflected in the influence and opulence of the friaries endowed by them. Indeed, it may be indicative of the wealth of the friaries in Ireland and or the strength of their patronage networks that at least 45 chalices survived from the period 1550 to 1625, which obviously um, was a period of extreme religious conflict and persecution. Uh, in some cases, a singular patron uh, would have provided the bulk of what the friars would have required. Uh, with the foundation of the friary attributed to a, a specific individual. For example, we have here on the, on the left side, the Conor Franciscan Friary um, was founded by William Buell Kelly uh, in 15, uh, 30, uh, 1353. Um, and uh, on the other side, uh, John de Coggan uh, founded Clare Galway, another Franciscan friary, in around about 1250. However, this, would not be, this wouldn't have been sustainable throughout uh, the country where levels of wealth uh, fluctuated wildly. So while they'll often have a specific founder that might be attributed to it, in some cases they will have given uh, in a substantial amount can be, can be regarded as being the principal or the, the, the founder. Uh, in other cases, they're kind of maybe the first uh, founder. Um, in other cases, such as here at Adair, in uh, the Franciscan Friary of Adair in County Limerick, um, we have an example of um, uh, benefaction as uh, a collaborative uh, effort. Um, this is actually on a golf course at the moment. I think that's around. The, I think it's around the seventeenth hole. You have, when you're when you're st when you're standing in one of the chapels, like directly beside you, is where the guys are teeing off. So you have to be, you get to, you get looked at if you're taking photographs inside it because you're making noise. Um, this is one of those horrible big uh, texty kind of slides. But th this is actually an inventory uh, or a record from uh, the from a dare Franciscan friary, and it shows the uh, the donors, the people who have actually um, uh, uh, acted as benefactors uh, for the uh, the friary. We can see Thomas uh, Fitzmaurice uh, Fitzgerald, seventh Earl of Kildare, and his wife uh, Joanna, daughter of James, sixth Earl of Ormond. They have contributed the church, the quarter, the cloister, garden, orchard, lands, a bell, and two silver chalices. I'm not going to show the whole thing, but just. Just to point out a few, uh, Rory O'Dea, who's a tertiary, gave a second quarter of the cloister and he gave a silver chalice. Um, his son and the, his, uh, the son's wife, Sabina, gave a, a third quarter of the, chalice, of the uh, cloister. Um, and we see in a, in a few instances, Cornelius O'Sullivan, he actually gave uh, the belfry and a silver chalice. So these, these were never just built as one enormous big uh, project. They, were, they usually took uh, quite a lot of time and uh, these bequeathments happened over, over years. So moving on to altar place and uh, uh, chalices, we have uh, the two chalices on the right are connected with uh, uh, Kilconnell Franciscan Friary itself. Um, and these are all uh, Galway chalices from the 17th century. So architecture aside, one of the most common gifts to a foundation was altar place and chief among them was the chalice. The chalice is long being regarded as the principle of sacred vessels used in the celebration of the Eucharist. Symbolically significant due to its function uh, of holding the blood of Christ, uh, they are typically made from precious metals and singled out for particular adornment. 
In the later medieval period, the donation of gold or silver chalices, uh, often inscribed with donors' names, was a common means of commemorating the dedication of a church or an altar, um, or uh, memorialising an occasion such as, as a marriage or death, and ensured a continued and personal association between the patron and the religious foundation. As key components of Catholic worship, and as personal relics of donor families associated with the religious foundations in Ireland, altar place and specifically chalices became political standards that were targeted during the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries. Their value, material, spiritual and personal, resulted in their theft, desecration and destruction at the hands of religious aggressors uh, in Ireland um, and forced the religious orders to rely on their allies and protectors uh, uh, during particularly perilous times. And if you read the, um, the, the sources, uh, the, the, the term that's always used in people like Donatus Muniz, uh, they won't say uh, religious aggressors, they'll say heretics. It's always a heretic has, has, has done damage to a church, a friary, a chalice or whatever it is. Patrons regarded their friaries, abbeys and the priories that they, uh, they acted as benefactors for as places of education, retirement and burial. The familial and spiritual uh, link to the religious foundation explains the large expense undertaken by patrons in their provision of buildings, uh, decoration, ornamentation, tombs and altar place to the, uh, to the friars. It also accounts for their upkeep after the expulsion of the friars during the 16th and 17th centuries and their protection of the altar place and burial sites closely tied to their families. Here we have Kilconnell Franciscan Friary. Uh, that's just the top one with the kind of very acidic green. Uh, that's actually not a doctored photograph. It would have been raining heavily and it's a particularly odd kind of landscape around Kilconnell. Uh, that's the east window. Here's the very famous, uh, part of the very famous tomb um, at the uh, western entrance and uh, just uh, another, uh, the Donald Mostian Chalice of 1640. Um, okay, so I've kind of provided you now with context and a greater concept of the importance of altar place. We'll now look at the case study of Kilconnell Franciscan Friary um, to examine the role altar place and inventories can play in developing our understanding of contemporary events and uh, networks. What singles out Kilconnell Franciscan Friary over the impressive architecture, the colourful history and the substantial funerary monuments are the 17th century uh, inventories which provide a unique window into the concerns of the friars about their possessions and specifically altar place uh, associated with the 14th century foundations, patrons and subsequent patronage networks. William Bui O'Kelly, who was the Lord of Hymenia in East Galway, uh, founded the Kilconnell Friary in uh, 1353. An example of how the altar plate can be used, there was, it was presumed based on a, uh, a mistranslated um, uh, papal uh, document that it was actually founded in 1414, uh, but there's a piece of altar plate dated 1409. It's a, a monstrance um, that's connected with uh, the O'Kellys, that's directly connected with Kilconnell, so we're able to push the date back to uh, the earlier one of, of 1353, based purely on a piece of, of altar plate that survived. Oh, so the, the O'Kellys proved themselves able and devoted patrons of the Franciscans at Kilconnell throughout the late medieval period, both principal and uh, minor branches of the family. The Friary suffered frequent occupation as a result of its strategic importance uh, in O'Kelly lands, it was directly on the Dublin to Galway um, road, um, but in spite of its use as a garrison by English forces on a number of occasions in the late 17th and early, eight, uh, sorry, late 16th and early 17th centuries, uh, the Friary actually remained in good condition by around about 1617 when the Franciscan provincial Donatus Mooney was making his, uh, make, doing his rounds and recorded that it was in good condition. So on to the inventories. Uh, the first inventory is from 1654. Uh, it's the first of four key documents associated with Kilconnell. It's a simple document. Uh, we're looking at the base up in the kind of the far, the far corner um, with the line underneath it. Uh, it's a simple document. It lists five unnamed pieces of altar plate that were transported to St. Anthony's College in Louvain by Brian O'Flaherty uh, during the Cromwellian campaign in Ireland for safekeeping. That's literally it. They don't reference anything else. You can see the, uh, the, the Latin and the, the translation. This is all that, that they actually said. Okay, 
uh, three silver chalices or three gilt chalices, one silver chalice and a ciborium also used as a monstrance or kind of adapted into a monstrance. And this is actually the uh, chalice or the, uh, the, the piece of altar plate that we were able to use to identify um, the, the, the founding date of Kilconnell uh, Friary. So that's that. Uh, the 1687 uh, inventory uh, provides more detail of the material transported to Levain in 1654 in anticipation of its return to Kilconnell from the continent during a period of Catholic resurgence and optimism in, in Ireland, much, was, much like uh, Stuart's talk yesterday about uh, Malone, the kind of this Catholic optimism in Ireland in the, in the late uh, 1680s. Um, this inventory contains the name of donors of the original five pieces that we can see. We have William O'Kelly and Anna, Annabel Starr. We have a kind of a broken um, inscription on this as the second one, Con O'Neill and uh, McMorrissey chalice. We have this, the Thomas de Burgo uh, chalice, and we also have this Malachy Kelly uh, ciborium. So we have a bit more, bit more information than we did in the uh, earlier inventory. Okay, there's just the, the, the two lads uh, that attributed to uh, Catholic uh, security for at least a little while. Uh, 1689, uh, this is when it ended. In stark contrast to the optimism of 1687, the 1689 inventory was created at the beginning of what was to be a tremendously destructive period for Catholic Ireland um, after the landing of the Protestant army of William of Orange uh, that year. By comparison to the shortlists of 1654 and 87, the inventory uh, consists of a complete catalogue of the, uh, of the Kilconnell uh, community's uh, altar plate. Most interestingly, it includes a number of pieces of altar plate that actually predate 1654, um, and the, uh, but that actually wasn't included in the 1654 list. This suggests that the, uh, the list from 1654 didn't represent the entire collection of the community at the time, but actually its most important pieces. Uh, they're the ones that actually went. So you can see here uh, the list of, of the, uh, the uh, inventory um, behind me. Uh, however, despite uh, the concern in 1689, the community were not forced uh, to put their material possessions into safekeeping until the banishment edict of uh, 1697. Uh, this is another one of those horrible ones, just to give you a bit of an idea of the actual collection of, of the, uh, the, the order. The resultant inventory of 1698 is a detailed list of 28 ch uh, chalices, a large collection of vestments and liturgical objects associated with the high altar and a detailed description of the day-to-day -day furnishings of the community uh, that were to be sold. Uh, unlike the previous uh, inventories, the 1698 inventory details the actual individuals who were undertook to protect the altar place. So it's quite different to the other ones. Um, and the other friars, possession, the friars' other possessions, um, with the same names coming up again. You can't really see it, but it says here, uh, five chalices are placed in the care of Sir Ulick Burke. Uh, Judge Dennis, Dennis Daly got ten chalices. Uh, Dennis Daly of List Duff. This is why the uh, things like Loganum is very useful to get your, 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 your townlands. Uh, two Dennis Daly's. With Captain Charles Daly, he took uh, three chalices, two monsters and a, and a, a pixie. Um, we have William, uh, uh, the, the metal one, not the little one with the ears. Um, we have uh, William Kelly of, of Turek. He got uh, a mass book, an entire vestment set and a chalice. Um, Lachlan Donlan got uh, another chalice. Captain David Kelly uh, got a chalice. And Councillor Peter Daly, uh, he also received a chalice. So we can see here we've got Daly's, uh, we've got uh, Burke's and we've got Donlan's. Okay. Um, unlike the previous inventory, oh yeah, sorry. So what is significant is that this was a pragmatic inventory intended to record the custodian of the altar place and provide their locations in anticipation of the eventual return of the friars to Ireland. Unlike the previous inventories written in Latin, this is also written in English. It was practical. It was administrative. Um, the importance of this collection of inventories is what it reveals about the Franciscan community, um, its material wealth, its ability to deal with the, ch uh, the challenging political circumstances, uh, and above all, what it reveals about the complex and local patronage networks it maintained uh, with leading families in the area. So, 
the survival of only five of the 28 chalices mentioned from the inventories re- reveals the importance of documentation uh, such as this in expanding our understanding of complex historical narratives and networks. Um, however, by way of conclusion, I, I'd like to explore one chalice in particular, the Thomas Burke Chalice of 1633, in an effort to highlight the value of material culture as a significant historical source. Uh, noticeably, this is not one of the five chalices that's actually survived to date. Okay, this is the Thomas Burke Chalice. Um, the, sing- the, uh, the single silver chalice of, si- of uh, the 1687 inventory was a 1633 chalice inscribed uh, the name of Sir Thomas Burke, a knight of Loch Mask. Uh, but who was Thomas Burke? We have two possible men that could fit the bill. Uh, the first is Thomas, the second son of Ulick uh, Burke, the third Earl of Clonrickard, and Honora Burke, uh, the Countess Clonrickard. Uh, Thomas Burke married Ursula Malby, uh, daughter of Sir Nicholas Malby, President of Connacht. Uh, it would stand to reason that Alterplate associated with such an influential and powerful uh, local family as the Burkes of Clonrickard uh, would have been highly valued by the Friars, again explaining its transportation to Levain with other founding Alterplates. However, the Burks were not significant patrons. This is just a, a small little uh, um, family tree, a very small one. Um, they were uh, not significant patrons of Kilconnell Friary. Uh, instead, the Clonrickard Burks were well-known benefactors of the Friaries at Mielik, Ross Early, Clare Galway, Kinalehan, and the Abbey of St. Francis. So basically everywhere around Kilconnell, but Kilconnell. So we're going, we're going to ignore him. Um, the second possibility is uh, Thomas Burke number two, uh, second Viscount Clon- Clonmaris. Well, there's nothing definitive that directly attributes the, the chalice Definitely to either character, a number of fam- uh, familial connections would suggest that it was this Thomas Burke who commissioned the chalice. Thomas was part of a close fa- uh, network of uh, families that existed from Meath to Galway that had important connections to the Franciscan Friars of Connacht, Louvain, uh, and also the Secular Irish College at Douay. So here's his family network that I've put together. I'll go through that, don't worry. Um, he was the son of John Burke. Um, first Viking Clon Morris and Catherine Brabazon, daughter of, of uh, Captain Anthony Brabazon and uh, Ursula Malby. Ursula Malby was actually the first wife of the uh, t- previous Thomas Burke that we've discounted. So he was actually Thomas's uncle. This is where it gets confusing. Uh, we can see here that uh, Thomas married uh, Margaret Fleming, whose parents were uh, Christopher Fleming, 12th Lord of Slane, and Eleanor Barnwall, uh, closely linked, and they were closely linked by marriage, as you can see behind me, to the Bison, Nugent and MacDonald families who were regarded as some of the most enthusiastic protectors um, on whom the Catholic clergy could depend in the early 17th century. So we have Thomas Burke just here on the left. Um, he was married to the Flemings just on the right. We can see in the light blue the, the, the different Flemings. Thomas Fleming, 13th, uh, he was originally the 13th Lord of Slain, uh, gave that up and became, uh, uh, joined the Franciscan Order. Uh, becoming the Ar- Franciscan Archbishop of Dublin. Um, his, the, his, um, his brother, uh, William Fleming, he took over as 14th Lord of Slane. He married uh, Lady Anne MacDonald, who was originally, her first husband was uh, Christopher Nugent, 6th Baron um, of uh, Delvin, uh, who was a, a, a very famous protector of the Franciscans in Multifarnham. Uh, we also have the, her brother, James Fleming. We think he's connected to the only surviving piece of altar plate from uh, Monaghan, or the only reference to a chalice in uh, Monaghan, Franciscan Friary. Uh, we see the Baron Walls, uh, the Burks, the Malbys, the Brabazons. It's, kind of, it's, it's a very um, Im- impressive uh, family tree. To further support the identification of the person referred to in the inscription of the 1633 chalice, uh, John, first Viscount Clonmaris' dad, uh, died in 1633, the same year in which the chalice was created for the Friars of Kilconnell. Um, Thomas Burke had married Mar- uh, Margaret Fleming prior to 1633, further connecting Burke to the, inventory, uh, to the, the Friary of Kilconnell uh, through his wife's family before his father's death. It's likely that the Thomas Burke of the 1633 chalice was a gift to the Friars of Kilconnell uh, made upon the occasion of his father's death in the same year. But why does it feature on the earlier Kilconnell inventory? 
Uh, it's possibly due to his connection with the Viscounts Clonmaris, uh, Barnwalls, uh, the Flemings, Brabazons and other leading families uh, that the chalice was sent abroad uh, with the friars', friars other pre- uh, prized heirlooms in 1654 and reveals the importance placed uh, by the Kilconnell community upon their patronage networks. However, there's no contemporary references to the chalice outside of the Kilconnell inventories and it's unknown whether it's actually survived. Uh, so through marriage alliances, donation of altar plates, uh, tomb commemorations and ties uh, to the Franciscan order um, uh, and especially at Kilconnell, the families of uh, the uh, O'Kellys, uh, Daly's, Donlans, Flemings, Barnwalls, Bites, Brabazons, Nugent's, Burks, Malby's, Marshies, Wards, O'Keefe's, Woodfalls, Franis and MacDonald's, they're all actually interconnected. But that, there we go. Um, this uh, exploration of the fam- families associated with, with the possible donor of the 1633 chalice reveals the complex and deep uh, family connections between the Friary of Kilconnell and the powerful Catholic families across the Midlands between Galway and Meath. This here was just uh, a, a re- record of some of the monuments that were, that were at, uh, the families that have provided monuments at uh, Kilconnell uh, here behind. And this is just an example of the, I wrote that from John McCafferty, uh, the Bar- Barnwall uh, monument or the, the memorial in um, in Kilconnell itself. He was moved uh, west, um, unfortunately. Um, he wasn't particularly happy about it, uh, and this was erected after, after his death, and it, it uh, commemorated his, uh, his brothers and his uh, son as well. So this is kind of his pride of place in Kilconnell. Okay, so in conclusion, um, Kilconnell Franciscan Friars' material culture uh, offers a microcosm of later 17th century Irish society as reflected in the uh, connections of one uh, friary. Uh, the links between the, the Friars of Kilconnell, their brethren in Louvain, the widespread network of patrons and allies demonstrates the fundamental position of the Irish Franciscans at the heart of the Catholic aristocracy in the 17th century. It demonstrates the prominent role played as they played by, as educators of the Irish Catholic nobility, as providers of careers for young men, and also the importance of their foundations as physical manifestations of uh, religious, political and familial ties to an area and to a shared religious identity. Our understanding of these complex networks um, are developed through an investigation of material culture associated with the community, uh, both that which survives materially, but also that only in text. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.